Billy Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Taylor Hello, I'm Jonathan Agnew. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Booth from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashini, and you're listening to Not the Footage. Yes. Yes, you are indeed listening to another episode of Not The Footy Show. And as usual, we've got another special guest lined up for you. We're going to be talking to author and uh, boxing coach, writer, analyst, uh, Gary Todd, who wrote a book called Annie's Boy about his youth growing up in Dundee and how he got involved in boxing. And that's what we're going to be talking to him about. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. I'm John Lee. Good to see you again, John. Yes, and you. Been a couple of weeks. It has indeed. Lots been going on. Plenty going on. No, it never stops, does it? And that's why you can't. We were saying the last show, you know, you've forgotten the Women's World Cup because we're now into the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, and all sorts. Did you know that they're playing cricket at the moment, the Australian team? Where are they playing? Uh, Australia's in South Africa. Oh yeah, the One Day Series. Yeah. And I saw, yeah, England versus New Zealand. Well, the World, the Fifty Over World Cup's about to get underway, isn't it? I think it is, yeah. Oh, who knows? There's, there's so much going on. I still think the one-day cricket, if it wants to survive, don't take the limit off bowlers. I've been I'll saying be this for that. a long time. Well, batsmen don't have to retire after 10 overs. Absolutely, yep. I think it should be that a bowler can bowl as many overs as he needs to or wants to or his captain wants him to. Personally, I get rid of, rid of the short ball restrictions too. <laughs> yep. Anyway, who's going to start today? You can. You'll go. Okay, I'm going to turn my attention, John, to something I know you guys dealt with on the reverse stick, which, congratulations, 300 shows. Sad yes. it's all come to an end now, but, man, yes. you've commit, that commitment from you and Matt was incredible. Just over six years. Yeah, long time. But, but we're not, we're not dead, just... CPR. <laughs> <laughs> if we won't be doing a weekly podcast yeah. anymore. No, well, what I was going to touch on something you've touched on. I know there's other podcasts around the world. We've talked about it on this show. I've written stuff about it. The rules of hockey. And the, we, you've said for a long time, one of the things that is great about football is the rules are simple. What they have at international level, they translate at the lower levels. Absolutely. And this is something where I think hockey fails miserably in that the rules at international level may work there, but they're not working at the lower level because they're too complex or you'd be blowing the whistle every two minutes for half of the stuff. Well, let, just comparing football and hockey for a second, they're both sports where, regardless of age, gender or ability, you play on the same size field under the same rules. Yeah. There's, there's no ladies' tee. There's no shortened boundaries. Yeah. It's exactly the same. No, exactly. So, And that's why you have to make it work. But, but uh, look, we've had the finals here in WA, um, in the Premier Grades, and I've gone and watched those games. And I'm not, this is not having a slight at the umpires, because the umpires, I think, are working with a set of rules or having to interpret the rules, and there's no leadership. And that's my issue. I think there need to be less interpretive rules. But the umpiring's been atrocious. And what is really sad for me is, I've got a feeling you're going to see a final decided on an umpiring decision and you don't want to see that. Now, when I was at a game the other day, one of the finals, when you have people coming up to you saying that they've heard people in the crowd shouting abuse at hockey umpires and obscenities, obscenities yeah, and really the bad obscenities, you know, the, the words that you really don't like to hear. 
then you know you've got a problem. And this person apparently wasn't drunk, but the problem was the crowd were getting so frustrated with the decisions and the inconsistency. Now, I don't understand all that. I mean, I asked this question. I said, do both umpires come into the dressing rooms or talk to both teams before the game and go, this is how we're interpreting this? And I was told no. Now, to me, that would be, first up, a good way to address some of that and maybe take some of that angst out of the game. But when you see a player like Flynn Ogilvie, and I'm going to mention him, who is normally very calm, very level-headed. I know he played at your club at yep. Fremantle Coburn. He's a very so, cool cat. Yeah, and when you see him lose it in a game because, you know, a decision has been reversed against him when it clearly was the right decision initially, and everybody in the stadium knew it, and there was this, you know, universal groan when it got, to, but it didn't even get turned over. It, they gave a bully outside the circle when it should have been a penalty corner. It was just bizarre, and it. I can't understand how a penalty corner can be changed to a a a, a bully outside the circle. No, well, it's either. It, <laughs> yeah, make sense. No, uh, and most people in the crowd were going, "What? The, how did they get that?" It's not like someone's been injured in play, and the players had to stop without a an offence having occurred. Yeah, in which case you probably have to go. Yeah, we'll put the bully out. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, but I mean, th- these games as well. They've got the big screen. You think, well, use it then if you've got that there. But I'll, but I my, on that. I'm actually, it's another story for another day, but I'm actually getting really annoyed with the video situations in a number of sports because it was always brought in to get the right decision. I think what we're seeing now in a number of sports is it's being used to get the right out, to get the outcome they desire rather than the right decision. And I think there are a lot of times where they're not going to the video when they should because they don't want that to be the case. And I'm very dubious about the video now in a number of sports. I think it's time to kill it, get rid of it. People forget we got by without it. Yeah, and I think we need to go back to without it. I'm not. I'm not so sure it fits the realm of hockey. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think in in some sports, there's probably a place for it, but only you know a place for it. It's not the be all and end all of everything that goes on. But the sad thing, John, I think, looking at these finals, and is these are people who play the game purely for the love of it. You know, they're not making a living from it. In fact, the internationals aren't making a living from it. But when you go down, and the last thing you want to do is lose a final or a semi-final because of a bad decision. But there's too many bad decisions. If it was one, you could kind of go, okay, I'll take that. But there's too many happening, and it's down to the actual rules themselves, and they need to get in a room, sit down, sort them out, and make them less interpretive. Well, I think they we get the lead from our international... Yeah, 100%. The FI, and they recently announced they were going to run some trial rules for short corners. They were going to mess around with it, and, you know, uh, instead of staying... They don't like the, that term, by the way. It's penalty corners, not short corners. Um, instead of being on the top of the D, you'd have to be around the dotted five-yard line, around the edge, and it was very complex what they wanted to try and do. But they already have a rule in place that says you can't do exactly what you're proposing these people do. So they've got no idea about what their own rules are. They just come up with some magic idea and go, oh, we're going to do this without thinking through and going, well, what's the law of unintended consequence say about this? 
You know, like, and this this whole idea we keep boxing the sport into being dangerous. We call our sport dangerous. Bullshit. It it is no more dangerous than any other sport going around on the face of the earth. It doesn't give you brain damage, for instance, playing hockey as a consequence of just running around and playing the game. Yep, true, fair you know? point. It's just stupid, and this constantly tinkering with the game. Oh, we've got to tinker with the game because we've got to make it more this and more that. One thing we don't tinker with is how we administer and run our game. It's been running that way for a hundred years, and look how it's serving the hockey community at the moment. Tremendously badly, I would suggest. Now, the rules. Yes, there are some... It's mind-boggling, like, when they brought in the... um, It it can hit your foot if it's not influencing play rule. And there's still people, umpires, that will blow that or not blow it and and, and say that. What a stupid rule that is. It hits your foot. It should be a free hit. End of. So you're rewarding someone for a lack of skill, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And you know what? If it didn't hit their foot, what would have happened? Oh, it didn't influence play. Well, it did because the ball would have kept going. Yeah. And someone might have been able to run on the or end of it. Or it might have gone out of bounds and the other team would have had the ball. Yeah. I know. Also, it, it's just the dumbest rule, but they don't say, oh. The obstruction rule. Guess what? The obstruction rule still exists in the game of hockey. Umpires. But it's never officiated. It's never, ever. The number of times I see players step backwards into the person tackling them... That's obstruction. It happens. Well, look at it, look at a shootout. When you do a shootout, every it, player runs in and gets their back between them and the ball. Immediately shields. Yeah. That is a rule in hockey too. Yeah. You can't shield the ball. And what you're seeing as well as a result of this, and I mean there's meant to be no contact between the players, and you're seeing more and more players putting their hand on the back of the player when they reverse the into them. Yeah. Well, not just the goalie, but also in open play now. It's happening more and more. The overhead rule. I've seen top-level umpires blow a different interpretation within two minutes of blowing the whistle. Oh, no, that's their free hit. Oh, no, that... How? What is the rule? It's crazy. Well, I I told you, last end of last year at the finals, I was stood in the bar area at Hockey WA to... International coaches there, a former international umpire, and all three had been told different interpretations on the overhead rule. Yeah. And I'd been told a different one as well. So there were four people there, had all been told this is how it should be interpreted differently by officials. And if you are really concerned about safety and danger, then I would suggest a rule that allows people to swing their sticks wildly in the air above people's heads is probably not a good idea. Now, hasn't happened yet, as far as I'm aware, but someone's going to get seriously hurt as a result of it. And I'm sure people have been hit in the head and got stitches or whatever, but it's just gone under the radar slightly. But but here's a question. Like if someone for, loses an eye or something. Here's a question for you. Why are we seeing... I mean, clearly at the moment we're actually advocating that there need to be changes in the yeah. rules. However... We've seen over a period, you touched on there, we've seen over a period of years constant tinkering with the rules. Hmm. And is that because we have a rules committee and they feel they have to justify their existence by changing something once a year? Because I I question, and it's not just in hockey, in, in other sports you have these rules committees who think that they must 
change something. Well, there's a rule when a free hits inside the 25-yard line, the ball must travel five yard, five metres before it's allowed to travel into the circle. circle. Now, what do we say about that rule? It, it's, it's probably a good idea because in the old days, people would have a free hit right on the edge of the D and they'd just smash it. Mm. And it, that was potentially very dangerous. And it can still happen. But they tinkered with it. They set it up, they had it there, and then everybody had to be five yards away from the person from the free hit. Then they changed the rule. And there's a slight variation to it where if the ball is within five metres of the D, of the circle, and the defender is in the circle... Oh, yeah, I know. They don't yeah. have to actually get that five metres away. They do now, though. But they've changed it back. Yeah, I oh, know. <laughs> it's, it's just... But, but the, here was the ludicrous one in the one of the semi-finals. It was... Uh, I'm trying to think. It was um, Hale Aquinas, I think it might have been, or it might have been UWA versus Hale. And an overhead was thrown into the circle, and the player is standing by the baseline, and the Hale goalkeeper, who happens to be the Kookaburra's goalkeeper, Johan Durst, runs out and paddles the ball away, makes a penalty corner, is given against him. And you go, but he's a goalkeeper. You're in his area. Surely he has every right to go for that ball as long as he doesn't create any danger. Well, it, it's stupid that... Imagine in any other sport... You're not allowed to make a save. Exactly. Yeah. Not only that, you're not allowed to... You have, you have to allow that player to get a free possession inside the scoring zone yeah. and stay five yards away from him. Yeah, well, the goal wasn't even five... Yeah, metres away. So he could have been actually standing in the goal mouth and he would have been breaking the rule. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's ju- and it's just a dumb rule. A goalkeeper's there, and I've seen this one again, you touch on it internationally, I've seen it, David Carter got, um, came out for Canada and made a save and got pinged a while back, and it's like, eh. goalkeepers, it's, if you're in your area, they should be allowed to make a save. I'm sorry. And going back to your point about being the same for all levels, right, it's all very well and good to tinker with the rules and put these little minute changes in and all that sort of stuff, when you've got your top-grade umpires who you send off to seminars and you're doing all that sort of stuff with. But for your average hockey player who's just got Joe Blow from down the street umpiring, yeah. who's to say what, do they even know that rule exists? Yeah, and, and that's what I'm saying as well, is this communication from the top yeah. filtering down to all the levels. Not just the rules, but also the interpretation of it, how it's meant to be administered. It's not happening. It's not happening. It's, there's a breakdown in communication, and the game is suffering at all levels because of it. And I'm going to bring something up that many people will bag me for, a, a, an opinion. It's just an opinion. Okay, over the last... 15 years, we've seen a lot of emphasis put by hockey associations on getting juniors to umpire. A lot of emphasis. Young umpires, get them in early, blah, 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 blah. Which I think is totally the wrong thing to do. Because what you're doing, those, those hockey players are naive. And, and they haven't developed a good sense... An of, understanding of the game. Of the game. And so... You're giving them a whistle at 13 or 14, sending them out to umpire and in all sorts of grades, encouraging them more to umpire than to play. Oh, yeah, we've got to get these young young kids in. And what you're seeing is a whole generation of umpires come through now 
don't understand the game. Not like umpires used to, because they may not have picked up a whistle until they were 25. Yeah. And, and the other side of it is, once you got, once you used to get into seniors, you had to umpire. There would be umpiring buyers. Your team would be given a whole list of games and you would go off and umpire them. So at least you were getting a, a base of people that had an understanding of what it takes to be an umpire and blah, blah. And there was probably more leeway given by players to umpires than there is today. Because we don't have to umpire, we're just bagging that young kid that's just been paid 60 bucks because he's a contractor. He's not, he's not an approved, appointed umpire by Hockey WA. He's outside of there. We have to go and get our own umpires. So yeah. he immediately becomes a subcontractor. Or that, that the yeah. girl. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right because football went down that path trying to get young people. And, and look, you'll always find one or two that are really good. Yeah, but and they the want exceptions. To, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but don't the, hang your but head the problem on you had as well was they just exactly what you said. They didn't have a feel for the game, so no. didn't know when to play advantage and when not to, and also would penalise things that were not necessarily that bad. You know, when you could have let play go. I saw an umpire uh, bought over by Hockey Australia who umpired classic league games here in Perth, I saw them, a player, a defender, was stuck in the, near the sideline, near the baseline. Yep. Free hit to the defence. The guy's got three attackers around him. And you know what the umpire called? Play on advantage. In what world... (laughs) In what world is someone who is trapped in the back corner, surrounded by three attackers, in what world is that advantage to the defence? I want the hit, mate. Blow the hit. Like, it's just a lack of game awareness and what's going on. And that especially happens with um, stick obstruction. Mate, the number of stick checks that go on in modern hockey is just a joke. Oh, yeah. Uh, You can't tackle from behind. Unless you're, unless it's a hundred percent beautiful, you can't do it. Anyway, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think we should move on to our special guest, don't you? Absolutely. Hello, my name is Joe Cortez, international boxing referee from Las Vegas, Nevada, the boxing capital of the world. Listen to Not the Footy Show. It's a knockout. Check it out. Well, as I mentioned, we have a special guest on the show today. He has written an autobiographical book uh, about really his mother's influence on his life called Annie's Boy. But he's also written The Greatest Ever Boxing Workouts. Those are two books as well. And we're going to catch up now with Gary Todd. Gary Todd, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Hello, Ashley. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Well, I was looking forward to catching up with you again. Obviously, we met in Sydney for the first time, and you very kindly gave me a copy of your book, Annie's Boy, which obviously it must have been inspired to write it when your mum passed away. And it was, I've got to say, it's a very, very moving book, and congratulations on sharing all those memories. Is that is that really how it came about when your mum passed away? You thought, I've got to do something to remember her by? Uh, pretty much, Ashley. Um, I, I started, it's a long story, but I started... Um... I thought I actually started thinking about it before I wrote that, like for a long time, and then um, 
I went on a radio show. My son got me on this radio show in Sydney. And um, I, I was really, uh, I got really good reception. And uh, people were saying, oh, it's, you've got to write a book. You've got to, this could be a great movie and all this stuff. And um, I was a while after it. And then I, I kind of thought, we're immigrants here in Australia. Um, it was very hard to, for us to go back uh, as a family. Very expensive. So we never really, my kids never really knew their, their granny. Um, my wife never really knew my mum. And um, and they obviously never knew nothing about my younger days uh, and, and growing up in Scotland. So that was really the sort of catalyst uh, doing it. Because I thought, well, being an immigrant, it'd be great if I could get this published and it would always be on a bookshelf in, uh, in our family. I mean, never mind about making money or selling in different countries. Just it'd be great to be on the bookshelf forever, you know. No, absolutely. So that, was the, that was the inspiration. Yeah, and I mean, it, it was a. It sounds like you had a pretty tough life growing up in uh, Dundee, and I mean, having to testify against your dad when you're just ten years old—that must have been really difficult. Uh, well, actually, all, all the stuff that went on before that was much more uh, difficult. So testifying in court was just me sort of lobbing up and um I kinda I kinda lost my childhood about the other things that went on and I wasn't really a, a wee boy um as such I was but I wasn't you know. Um yeah. and I and I thought myself if it, if I don't do this I think I think we'll end up I think he was gonna murder us. So I thought we'd be dead and uh I just wanted to end. So I thought well if that's what they're, if, if that's what they want, they wanted a witness. If they wanted uh, somebody to talk up, then it was, it was only me to talk up. So that's what I don't. I really never had a choice. Yeah. Now I think it was around then from memory. I'm sort of casting my mind back, having read the book now. Um, but you sort of snuck. Is it right that you sort of you'd watched a bit of boxing on TV, but then you and a mate snuck into a gym and and started sort of hitting the bags? Then is that right? Well. What what it was was um, me we bumped into a, a guy called Frank Henry. So Frank Henry was we never knew that, but Frank Henry was the, uh, uh, the sort of president of the amateur boxing in Scotland. And uh, I was just sort of chance meeting, and he said to me, "Do you fancy coming down? You look sort of fit and strong. Do you fancy coming down to the gym?" So he got me introduced into the boxing, and so me and my mate. I uh, got on the bus every, and we, we went through like this creepy old uh, railway yard, and then uh, we got to the gym, and that was it. And I was hooked on it for, for the training side of things for all my life, you know. So that's that's how it came about. But um, I, I I went on, but I tried to keep it low key as possible because you didn't want anybody knowing that you went boxing because you you get even more trouble, you know. <laughs> I so can. Well I just wanted to be that. low key. Uh, so that's what I'd done, and uh, that's what I started. And it was I was just I only done it for the training, for the discipline, for the uh, exercise. You know, I didn't I didn't actually do it for the, the fighting side of things. Yeah, um, but was it was it also a bit of a release for you as well to sort of just get away and focus on something like boxing and sort of get frustrations out and just work on getting fit? I was I, I was definitely that and. One of the other reasons as well is that inside, I was still sort of 
um, going through a lot of sort of turmoil inside uh, mentally. And I always thought my, my dad would come back. And I thought to myself, well, look, if I can, if I can get sort of big and strong, at least I can have some sort of a go at him if he ever does come back. And, uh, that was, that was in, that was what I had inside. I never told anybody that, obviously, but I kept everything to myself. And, um, but that was, you know, the main reasons I went as well. Did you have and, any uh, amateur fights back then? Uh, no, 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 as such. We put on the ribbons, uh, and then we got on and we done sparring and stuff like that. And it was just some sort of, uh, in, in-house sort of, uh, sparring sessions with amateur, uh, fighters. Um, but I wasn't until I got to Australia and then I'd done a bit in Australia, I'd done a bit in America, um, and places like uh, Gleason's, uh, gym in New York and things like that. So I've done, look, actually I've always been involved in it. I've, I've never been away from it as such. I had a spell in Scotland when I, I gave up uh, the boxing side of things and I went and done marathon running. So I competed in uh, a lot of marathons, half marathons, uh, 10 mile runs and, and the like. So that's, uh, and I got everything I've done in my life. I've always put my heart into it. So if I go into someone, I get sort of kind of possessed and, uh, it, uh, it, uh, consumes us, whatever I do. So that's, that's me. I don't, I don't know what's, why, but that's just me. Well, that, that's a good way to be. I think if you're going to do something, my dad always told me if you're going to do something, do it properly. So that's probably what you've done. But, but I mean, you, you said you didn't look to get into any fights outside of the ring, but it, it sounded like reading the book that your boxing was actually pretty useful a couple of times in the sort of 80s in Britain when it was sort of Thatcher's Britain and there was a lot of unrest up and down the country. There was, there was a lot of unrest in Dundee. and Dundee was an industrial city uh, that turned into a sort of grave graveyard overnight. Uh, Thatcher closed a lot of the... the um, the mines, the, the pits, the, she closed the factories, she moved the factories, and Dundee was quite prosperous for a while. Um, and she closed them all. And to this day, I don't think there's much happening as in factories reopening and things like that. They all went down to England and, uh, maybe further afield. But in the, it was a lot, there was a lot of unrest, a lot of people, they, they turned to drugs and uh, alcohol. And there was, there was gangs there, there was the scheme gangs. So the, you call them suburbs here in Australia, but they were, they're called schemes. So it's like where the projects are, the housing commission and, uh, every sort of housing commission area had a, their own sort of gang. I was never in a gang. I didn't, I didn't like gang. I didn't like bullies. I hated bullies because my old man was a bully. And, um, that, that kind of gave me a few challenges, uh, through, through the years, but there was always fighting. There was, there was fighting. Whatever you went, you just had to sort of turn, for instance, I tried my best to stay away from it, but some occasions there was a few, uh, fisticuffs and, and probably worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I got, a, I got a glass in my, I got a glass in the face when I was 14. Whoa. And, uh, you know, so you don't see it now. It's actually, I'm quite lucky it's under my chin. It's probably under my double chin. Because <laughs> 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 I'm older now, but. Years ago, I used to be able to see it. And in the winter, I used to turn purple. But doesn't look, my whole head turns purple now. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned coming to Australia and, and boxing staying there. I mean, uh, 
we were having an interesting chat and you were telling me how you've worked as a corner man for the likes of Anthony Mundine. How did that all come about? Because also to be a sort of cut man, you need to have the skills there. I I just, it's like everyone else I've done in my life. I just picked it up as I went along. So um, we, we Mundine, I, I, I've never actually made money. Or I've never took money for boxing, but... I have I have worked uh, loads of corners and I've I've worked corners internationally as well. Um, I didn't. Uh, I I always done it because I loved the sport. I never ever done it for money or anything like that. I just loved being there. Um, but to be mundane, it was just I kind of just fell into be mundane. Um, I trained we, you know, in in the the, the late eighties, I trained with like Jeff Harden. I'd been doing it at Jeff Phoenix gym with eyes. Uh, his boxers, um, Danny Green, uh, the Hussein brothers, uh, Vic Darchinian, um, Love More Than I Do. Um, I'd been in the gym with them, so I kind of just came naturally, and I, and I picked up uh, as I went along, you know, learning how to wrap the hands, and uh, and I watched them with the... the uh, I'd done a few courses and first aid through the construction, which is what I do, uh, my, my day job, and um, I wasn't I wasn't that hard. I didn't find it that hard, and then I uh, got an end swell, which is the thing that you flatten yep. the, you spread the bruise and all that stuff. So it was pretty easy. I, I didn't find it. I, I just just took it as it came, you know. Like, and um, yeah, but working with him, uh, with Anthony Mundine, uh, as you said, you on the phone. Didn't I, didn't I get any money for that? Didn't he make any money? And I never have, and I did. I, I make enough money with construction and probably writing the books and what have you, but I don't really. I just do it because I love the sport. Well, you mentioned your books there, and we've obviously talked about the one you've written, the autobiographical one, Annie's Boy, but you've also got the greatest ever boxing workouts. Now, I mean, that's a really great concept you came up with there. How did that come about? Well, that was that was a pure labour of love. We, I used to work two and three jobs, the things I'd done to get the money. And then I'd, I'd uh, jump on the plane, and I just I just lob up at the, the fights, and I'd, if I seen anybody famous, I'd, I would ask them, uh, I'd tell them a story, tell them what I wanted to do, which was basically get to their gym, uh, interview them, spend some time with them, um, and and basically ask them what they've done on a day to day, in their lives when they're in training camp, so. First couple of times it wasn't as successful. Uh, one of the first uh, interviews I got was Mike Tyson, and um, Mike Mike's. Uh, I've since that I trained with Mike Tyson a few occasions in the gym, and Mike's always been different. So it doesn't. It depends on what mood he's in, as to what answers you'll get for the book. So the first time I interviewed him for the book, he was I was kind of X-rated, <laughs> and. Um, I, I actually left him sitting in the chair, um, and I said to him, I said, well, I can't put any of that stuff in the book. Kids look up to you. But the next time I met him, he was like normal. And then the next time I met him after that in the gym, he was, he was great. Um, and as I said, that was that. But as, as the years went on, it took us a long time to write that book. Just we purely getting on a plane, getting the money. I can imagine. Flying across to these, flying across to these places, uh, around the world. Uh, getting the doors opened for me, you know, through just kind of getting experience, getting to know people, getting a good name in the sport, and then 
after a wee while, I, I got I got there, and eventually, as I said, I've interviewed and trained with over a hundred world champions around the world. So, and I've also met the greatest Muhammad Ali. I've met Joe Frazier. I've met all the old timers, Ken Norton, Larry Holmes. Um, but I've I've met all them. Obviously, I wasn't in the gym with them, but I still got to interview them, which was a real a real thrill for me. And I got to interview and. Uh, Marvin Hagler, which is my favourite fighter of all time. Ah, he's one um, too, as well. No, I love Hagler, uh, And um, I was lucky enough to meet him. And um, that, that that occasion, actually, it's quite funny. I was I was so in awe be meeting Marvin Hagler. He had this bodyguard with him called Vinny, and he was straight out of the Sopranos, this guy. <laughs> and uh, you couldn't you couldn't get a you couldn't get a smile at this guy. And I kind of got on a bit of a uh, confrontation with Vinny, just with his personality and my personality, and uh, he he said to me that he was going to take me outside and shoot me, you know. <laughs> and um, Hagler had to get in the middle, and uh, Hagler was actually laughing. And uh, I wasn't laughing, and Vinny certainly wasn't laughing. But anyway, <laughs> Hagler's, Hagler's wife came along, and she broke up the, uh, the kind of confrontation, and we went our separate ways. <laughs> so uh, that was one story. But another story, I met uh, Tommy Hearns. Tommy Hearns, I was I just finished a run in Las Vegas, my road work, and I was I was I was kind of walking through Caesar's Palace, and I heard all this commotion in the distance at the crap tables, and there was all these uh, these uh, guys with black suits on, blue suits, red suits, pink suits with the big hats, you know, like Huggy Bear off of Starsky and Hutch. I do and indeed. I, <laughs> yeah. And I, and I walked across to him and I went, that's Tommy Hearns. I goes, oh, I've got to try and get the hat man for the, for my book. So I went across to him and they were all drunk playing crap on together in the crap deals. And, um, I went across to him and I says, look, Tommy, I look, I'm a big fan and is there any chance I can get, uh, to interview you? And he goes, yep, on one condition. And I goes, what is that, Tommy? He goes, you beat me at arm wrestling. <laughs> so while I'm there, was, I'd, already, I'd already done my run on that, so I was, I was sort of well warmed up. He was drunk, and we we got grasped hands across the crap table, and I and I bit him with my right hand at arm wrestling, and I got my interview. <laughs> but the crowd, the crowd had gathered round the crap table, and all the all the all his mates were all shouting, you know, I'm not saying what he said on, but he was all swearing, and there was a, a lot of profanities going on. Because I bit Tommy Hearns at the arm wrestling, but uh, I'm some memory. Fantastic, uh, man. I got, I got, I got my interview. I was a great memory, but I got my interview. But uh, there's been loads. There's, there's been too many actually. There's, um, some brilliant, um, magical memories in the gym, like seeing uh, Mike Tyson knocking out seven guys one after the other. Um, Floyd Mayweather at the end of Floyd Mayweather's uh, workout. Um, He's he's got a massive uh, hot tub in another room in his gym, and he's and he's always got somebody waiting for him, a couple of girls waiting for him in the hot tub after each workout, <laughs> and that's he definitely lives like a king, and he's uh, uh, he definitely works hard, but he, I think he plays uh, hard as well. Could you ever have imagined? Sorry to interrupt. Could you ever have imagined though? That you would have had all these opportunities when you know you were living that life with your mum. No, no, no chance. 
I I always had the sort of a fire on us, and there was always a kind of persistent. I had to be uh, to get on. I, I was always doing things, ducking and diving, and uh, you know, a lot of times I was a little bit of a scoundrel, uh, but I had to be, and that probably took me. I was never shy, you know what I mean. I was always sort of. I got if the door opened a wee bit, I'd always kick it in, you know. Well, well, I mean, the thing that I'm, I'm really pleased is I'm, I'm very happy that you've had the life you have and that you've gone from, obviously, that tough childhood. But it's fantastic because the news in that you've been nominated for the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and, I mean, that's just a huge, huge honour. Actually, it's, 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 it's actually surreal. It's the, it's, the, it's the icing on the cake for me. It's been a lifetime in boxing a lot of a lot of struggle as well, by the way. Um, just just different things affecting affected my family a wee bit, you know. Like my wife's had to put me a lot, but she's always been supportive. Um, and I, I've always been mad on boxing. It's been it's probably the first thing I think though when I got up in the morning, and that sounds a bit daft, but it just is. And I'm always like on at the weekends, oh, what, the fights on, and what's the results and all that stuff. So. And I've done it, but it's we are the writing I've done as well. So I've been writing for over 30 years. Uh, the magazines, the, the websites, you know. So I got there on own merits and there's no much, there's not really much else I can say, but I'm, I'm very happy that I got there on my merits. Some, you know, sometimes some people are gifted with things, but I wasn't, I've not been gifted with a thing in my life other than my kids. And, um, that's that's for me. It's a, it's a brilliant personal thing. You know, like getting the books published was fantastic. It was like they asked, they always say, "You'll never get a book published." You, you know, it's like winning the lottery, and and I got my books published. So that was really good for me and the family. But this is like a personal thing. You know, it's, it's it means a lot to me because it's a boxing. You know, to me, to me, it's like your your whole story is basically an example of incredible resilience that no matter what's thrown at you you've kept going and you've risen above it and and it's a real credit to you i have to say yeah thanks for saying actually look you know people have said that like but there's there's people that's got real resilience and they come through loads and loads of stuff i i never i don't never ever sort of class myself like i always just think i've just tried my best you know what i mean you've got to get a crack you're, you're only here once and you're a long time dead, you know. So my mum's, my mum always said that to me, like, son, you've just got to get a go and, and keep going, keep going strong. And, and that's what I've tried to do. You know what I mean? Times are hard and, you know, sometimes during your life you get down a bit, but you've got to keep up again, eh? You've got to keep going. You so do. that's the message that you've got. Yeah, you, you do. And I'm sure your mum would be incredibly proud of you. Gary, it's been wonderful catching up, and I do thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been great talking to you, Aston. It was uh, good luck with your uh, future endeavours as well. So, so I, I know you've, you've got some exciting things happening, so that's great. All the best, mate. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Thomas of Hitman Hunt, and you are listening to Not The Foodie Show. And that was Gary Todd, who was obviously telling us there how boxing played a big part in his youth and has played a big part in his life. 
and is still something he's very passionate about, having worked as a corner man, a cup man. He's a bit trained boxers. Uh, he's trained with the champions, over 100 world champions. That's something you can really boast about. And if you are interested, his website is garytodd.org if you want to order any of his books. One thing I do have to correct, John, is I said he was nominated for the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and I believe it's actually the National Boxing Hall of Fame in America so I got that one wrong. My apologies. Um, I will correct that now. Uh, but still a fantastic achievement to be nominated for a Hall of Fame in America. Oh, absolutely. Dundee, hey, in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's some youth. <laughs> well, apparently they, he was telling me that uh, they've written a script for the book. And oh, wow. And they were promoting or push it, uh, putting it in front of various... Uh, movie makers to see if it could be made into a film uh, so it would make a cracking film I think when yeah. having read the book um, but yeah it was there's some jarring moments in it I have to say yes uh, um, Rugby World Cup yep it's on it is I know indeed you, you love your rugby I do Australia has been less than uh, impressive in the build up but they got a win the other night in the first game they did and I, I mean it's funny I surprised someone the other day in that I said I'm convinced that Australia will make the semis even possibly the final and they went you're joking wow and I do I just think the side of the draw that they've got is a yeah. more favourable one but also I was talking when I was in the UK back in February to a guy that coached me rugby many years ago and he does a lot of analysis in that um, and he was saying um, Dave Rennie had got actually the Wallabies to a really good place. He goes, okay, they're not winning, but he goes, they've got the stats are there to show that this is a team with ability, with talent, and if they can just get it right. He was saying he felt that they got rid of Rennie too quickly, because and it was a very unfair that they were building. Obviously, Rennie's brief was to prepare them for the yeah, World yeah. Cup, so they would perform at the World Cup. And he said, I think they're actually in a very good place leading into the World Cup. Now they've brought Eddie Jones in. He's changed it. But I also think Eddie Jones is a damn good coach. I know the English might not think that, but I think he is a good coach. And I, I just think they will do okay. I, I think people will be surprised at how they'll perform in this tournament. That's my yeah. take on it. David Campese took a swipe at him in the uh, last 24 hours or so. Uh, well, he hasn't, it's, you know, he hasn't won anything. Yeah. No, he hasn't. Uh and he wanders around like Alex Ferguson. That's Cam Peasy saying that. Don't <laughs> when he has, well, you could. Uh, I mean, he did. He was the assistant coach when South Africa won, and Jake White was the coach. So yeah. um, he has actually won it, but yeah, as an assistant. And I mean, 2003, you couldn't have got closer, really. No, no, it's a bit unfair. Yeah, um, but no, I think it'll be interesting. I mean, you're, it's going to be pretty close, I think, because I mean, what I watched the Scotland South Africa game, and okay, South Africa won in the end, but Scotland were very competitive throughout that. And I'm being a Scotland fan always. I'm hoping that they might surprise a few people in this tournament. But I still think South Africa is going to be there or thereabouts come the end of the tournament. I don't believe England are going to be able to change their form, uh, even though you know they had an opening win. Ireland is one of the teams everybody's talking about. I just wonder whether they've got enough depth. You know, a World Cup's very different to playing over a period of time. Yeah. And I just don't know if they've got the depth. It'd be fantastic to see them do well. Uh, but that's my concern with them. France, great win in the opening game. Uh, but the French, again, they're hot, they're cold, you know. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, they're just as likely to turn up and 
get flogged by Fiji next week or something. Yeah, you know? they've always been like that. Yeah. Uh, but what about New Zealand? Do you, do you think that the, the comfort zone of always flogging Australia has, you know, it's clouded their mind a little bit? Oh, that, that record, that Bledisloe thing and all, all that sort of stuff, and they, you know, and as they've got a bit carried away with themselves in the lead-up to this. Ooh, carried away. I mean, I, I, yeah. know, I know that it's a changing time. I would say I don't rugby. think they've been tested rather than them getting carried away. Okay. That would be my thing. I don't, and I think they've been going through a bit of a transition in terms of players. Um, yeah, I... I I don't. Th- I just think they've not been really tested for a long time. Do you reckon there'd be teams going? Why did they have to lose the first one? Yeah, <laughs> they're, know, they're, like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. There may well be, but but look, you know, they're going to have to come back. But it, it again, if having lost that now, it could change the draw and how it all goes in the later stages, and that might suit New Zealand. You know, depending on how the other results go. Yeah, I'm. I'm really. I'm actually quite looking forward to. I think it's going to be a very close World Cup. I don't think... My view is I think South Africa is the team to beat. Okay. um, Because I do think they have the depth. Uh, But it's. I think it's going to be a very interesting World Cup. And I think we are going to see a few people who we thought... Or teams we thought were going to do well. We're going going to struggle or get upset. And we've also just seen a basketball men's World Cup. Um, There were high hopes for the Australian team. Because they finished third at... In the Olympics. In the Olympics, and yeah. they, they were very bullish about the quality of the squad that they were taking. Didn't turn out that way for them. Um, which poses a question, because basketball, of course, being an Olympic sport, how much they'll have their funding cut by, because, you know, obviously, finishing in the position they did, as other sports will tell you who've had their funding cut, they're obviously not a medal chance anymore. Yeah, well, I, if, if everything was fair and even in the world of sport, but as we know, John, it very rarely is. Well, I, you know, it's incumbent now upon the uh, Australian Olympic Committee and the Australian Sports Commission to point that out to basketball that under their criteria, they're not a medal chance and their funding should be cut accordingly. Yep. And wait, I, wait and see that not happen. It won't happen. Absolutely not. Which I mean, is a joke considering the way they've treated other sports, an absolute joke. Well, on that subject, and I'm hoping we might be able to catch up with him down the track, I just want to say, uh, mention, do you remember Ben Wright, the para yeah, weightlifting? Yeah, yeah. We've had him on the show many Came times. Yeah. It's a studio. Yeah. And, uh, we used to be, he used to, his training partner used to be Nang Noyan, but Nang's yeah. now switched to badminton. Oh, has he? Yep. <laughs> and he's doing very, very well. Uh, but Ben is still doing the weightlifting. If you remember, he got his fund, they got their funding cut dramatically. Probably, I'm trying to remember how long ago. It was probably about leading into Rio, I think. Yeah. Um, and he, they were complaining when they came on the show is that, you know, weightlifting is not a four-year cycle. It's about a 10 to 12-year cycle before you're going to get to your maximum. Well, it was interesting that he backed up that statement because he posted something that 10 years ago he lifted a personal best of 92.5 kilograms. He is now lifting 192 Point five wow. kilograms, hundred uh, kilos. Extra. Yeah, improvement in ten years. That's phenomenal. And you know he is now doing really well. And nothing would make me happier than to see him get a medal um, in France next year. It shows up exactly the problem with the funding model as it stands. Oh, it stinks. It's I've, it has done for years. And but you know tra- who always gets paid? The administrators. administrators. Yes, they do. <laughs> 
See ya. We'll be back next week.